0: Part two Chapter fifteen of Cupid in Africa by Percival Christopher Wren This Librivox recording is in the public domain Part two Chapter fifteen Butindi Half a mile beyond a village of the tiniest huts, built for themselves by the Cavirondo porters, and suggesting beehives rather than human habitations, Bertram beheld the entrenched and stockaded Boma, Zariba or fort. That was to be his home for some months. At that distance it looked like a solid square of grass huts and tents, surrounded by a high wall. He guessed each side to be about two hundred yards in length. It stood in a clearing which gave a field of fire of some three hundred yards in every direction. Halting the advance guard, he formed it up from single file into fours, and, taking his kit from alley, resumed it. Giving the order to march at attention, he approached the boma, above the entrance to which an officer was watching him through field-glasses. Halting his men at the plank which crossed the trench, he bade them stand easy, and leaving them in charge of a Havildar, crossed the little bridge and approached the gateway which faced sideways instead of outwards, and was so narrow that only one person at a time could pass through it. Between the trench and the wall of the boma was a space some ten yards in width wherein a number of small men in blue uniform, who resembled neither Indians nor Africans, were employed upon the off-duty duties of soldier, cleaning rifles and accoutrements, chopping wood, rolling puttees, preparing food, washing clothing, and pursuing trains of thought or insects. Against the wall stood the long, lean-to shelters, consisting of a roof of plaited palm-leaf, supported by poles, in which they lived. By the entrance was a guard-house, which suggested a rabbit-hutch, and a sentry, who, seeing the approach of an armed party, turned out the guard. The sergeant of the guard was an enormous man, with a skin like fine black satin, a skin that which no satin could be blacker nor more shiny. He was an obvious negro, Nubian, or Sudanese, but the men of the guard were small and fair, and wore blue turbans, of which the ornamental end hung tail-wise down their backs, Beneath their blue tunics were unpleated kilts or skirts, a kind of blue tartan, reaching to their knees. They had blue puttees and bare feet. Saluting the guard, Bertram entered the boma, and found himself in the high street of a close-packed village of huts and tents, which were the dwelling places of the officers, the hospital and sick-lines, the commissariat store, the officers' mess, the cook-house, orderly room, and offices. In the middle of the high street stood four poles, which supported a roof. A table of posts and packing-case boards, surrounded by native bedsteads of wood and string, by way of seats, constituted this the officers' mess, club, common-room and bar. A bunch of despondent-looking bananas, hanging from the ridge-pole, suggested food, and a bath containing a foot of water and an inch of mud suggested drink and cholera. About the table sat several British officers in ragged shirts and shorts, drinking tea and eating native chapatis. They looked ill and weary, the mosaic of scraps of stencilled packing-case wood, the tin plates, the biscuit-box sugar-basin, the condensed milk-tin milk-jug, the battered metal teapot and the pile of sodden-looking chupattis, made as uninviting an afternoon tea menage as could be imagined, particularly in that setting of muddy clay floor, rough-and-dirty angarebs, and, and roof-and-wall thatch of withered leaves and grass, a typical scene of modern glorious war with its dirt, discomfort, and privation, its disease, misery, and weary boredom. Bertram approached the rickety grass hut, and saluted. A very tall man, with the face and moustache of a viking, rose and extended his hand. "'How do, Green?' said he. "'Glad to see you. Hope you brought the rum ration safe. Take your bonnet off and undo your furs. Hope that pistol's not loaded. Nor that sword sharp. Oughtn't to go about with nasty dangerous things like that.' "'Hope the rum-ration's safe. "'Have some tea and a bloater. "'Burners, go and do quartermaster like a good lad. "'Have some rum and a bloater, Green.' "'Thank you, sir,' said Bertram, noting that the big man had a crown on one shoulder of his shirt and a safety-pin, "'spanning a huge hole on the other. "'His great arms and chest were bare, and a pair of corduroy riding-breeches, "'quite unfastened at the knee and calf, left an expanse of bare leg between their termination "'and the beginning of grey sagging socks.' Hobnell Boots, fastened with string, completed his attire. He looked like a tramp, a scarecrow, and a strong leader of men. "Afraid you'll have to drink out of a condensed milk-tin until your kit turns up,' said a pale and very handsome youth. "'You get a flavour of milk, though,' he added, with an air of impartiality, "'as well as of tin and solder. They burn your fingers so damnably, though, when you go to pick em up. Or why not drink out of the teapot, if everyone has finished?' "'Yes, I'll drop in a spot of condensed milk.' "'No, damn it all, Verica,' put in the Major. "'Let's do him well and create an impression. "'Nothing like beginning as you don't mean to go on. "'Or can't possibly go on. "'He can have the glass this evening, and some fresh tea, "'and his own tin of condensed, and a bloater. "'Hasn't he brought us rum and hope?' "'The pale and handsome Vereker sighed. "'You create a false impression, sir,' he said, "'and taking a key from his neck.' arose and unlocked a big chop-box that stood in a corner of the bander, thence he produced a glass tumbler, and set it before Bertram. "'There's the glass,' said he. "'It's now in your charge, present and correct. I'll receive it from you, and return the receipt at stand-to.' Bertram gathered that the tumbler was precious in the Major's sight, and that honour was being shown him. He had a faint sense of having reached home. He was disappointed when the servant brought fresh tea, a newly opened tin of milk, and the lid of a biscuit-box for a plate, to discover that the banana which reposed upon it was the bloater of his hopes, and the major's promise. "'For God's sake, use plenty of condensed milk,' said that gentleman, as Bertram put some into the glass, preparatory to pouring out his tea. Bertram thought it very kind and attentive of him, until he added, "'And pour the tea on to it, and not down the side of the glass.' That's how the other tumbler got done in." As he gratefully sipped the hot tea, and doubtfully munched a chapatti, Bertram took stock of the other members of the mess. Besides Major Mallory, sat a very hard-looking person, a typical fighting man, with the rather low forehead, rather protruding ears, rather high cheekbones, heavy jaw, and jutting chin of his kind. He spoke little, and that, somewhat truculently, wore a big heavy knife in his belt looked like a refined prize-fighter, and answered to the name of Captain Mac. Beside him, and in strong contrast, sat a young man of the Filbert genus. He wore a monocle, his nails were manicured, he spoke with the euphuism and euphemism of a certain Oxford type, he had an air of languor, boredom, and acute refinement, was addressed as Cecil Clarence, when not as Gussie Augustus Gus, and seemed to be one of the very best. On the same string bed, and in even stronger contrast, sat a dark-faced Indian youth. On his shoulder-straps were the letters I.M.S. and two stars, a lieutenant of the Indian Medical Service, and as such a member of this British officer's mess. Bertram wondered why the fact that he had been to England and read certain books should have this result, and whether the society of the subedar major of the regiment would have been preferred by the British officers. The young man talked a lot, and appeared anxious to show his freedom from anxiety, and his knowledge of English, idiom, and slang. When he addressed any one by the nickname which intimate pals bestowed upon him, Bertram felt sorry for this youth, with the hard staccato voice and raucous, mirthless laugh. Cecil Clarence said of him that, If one gave him an inch, he took an ell of a lot for granted. His name was Bupendranath Chatterjee and his papa sat cross-legged and barefooted in the doorway of a little shop in a calcutta bazaar and lent monies to the poor needy and oppressed for a considerable consideration about time for stand-to isn't it said the major consulting his wrist-watch hop it young clarence you might come round to me tonight, green if you finish tea can't offer you another bloater i'm afraid the other officers faded away a few minutes later a long blast was blown on a whistle there were near and distant cries of stand-to, and Cecil Clarence returned to the mess-bander. He was wearing tunic and cross-belt. On his cheerful young face was a look of portentous solemnity, as he approached the major, halted, saluted, stared at him as at a perfect stranger, and said, "'Stand-to, sir. All present and correct.' Over the major's face stole a similar expression. He looked as one who had received sudden interesting and important but anxious news. "'Thank you,' said he. "'I'll, uh, go round. Yes. Come with me, will you?' Cecil Clarence again saluted, and fell in behind the Major as he left the bander. Bertram followed. The Major went to his tent and put on his tunic and cross-belt. These did little to improve the unfastenable riding-breeches, bare calves and grey socks, but were evidently part of the right. Proceeding thence to the entrance of the boma, the Major squeezed through, was saluted by the guard, and there met by an English officer, in the dress of the small men, whom Bertram had noticed on his arrival. His white face looked incongruous with the blue turban and tartan petticoat. "'All present and correct, sir,' said he. Half his men were down in the trench, their rifles resting in the loopholes of the parapet. These loopholes were of wickerwork, like bottomless waste-paper baskets, and were built into the earthwork of the parapet so that a man, looking through one, had a foot of earth and logs above his head. The other half of his blue-clad force was inside the boma and lining the wall this wall some eight feet in height had been built by erecting two walls of stout wattle and posts two feet apart and then filling the space between these two with earth along the bottom of the wall ran a continuous fire-step some two feet in height and a line of wickerwork loopholes pierced it near the top in the angle where this side of the boma met the other was a tower of posts wattle and earth some twelve feet in height and on it within an earth and wattle wall and beneath a thatched roof was a machine-gun and its team of King's African Rifle Askaris, in charge of an English N.C.O. On the roof squatted a sentry, who stared at the sky with a look of rapt attention to duty. "'How are those two men, Black?' asked the Major, as the N.C.O. saluted. "'Very bad, sir,' was the reply. "'They'll die tonight. I'm quite sure the Germans had poisoned that honey and left it for our Askari patrols to find. I wondered at the time that they hadn't scoffed it themselves.' and it's so near their boma and plain to see and all i never thought about poison till it was too late foul swine said the major i suppose it's a trick they learnt from the shenzies this poisoning of wild honey more likely they tortured them, sir was the reply there ain't no savage as low as a german sir i lived in german east i did afore the war i know em the next face of the boma was held by the hundred and ninety-eighth Captain Mack met the Major and saluted them as a revered stranger. He too wore tunic and crossbelt, and a look of portentous solemnity, such as that on the faces of the Major, Cecil Clarence, and indeed everybody else. Bertram later labelled it the stand-to face, and practised to acquire it. "'How many sick, Captain Mack?' inquired the Major. twenty-seven sevens sir,' was the reply. Bertram wondered whether they were present in the spirit and correct in form. "'Fever or dysentery, or both, I suppose?' said the Major. "'Yes, except one with a poisoned foot, and one who seems to be going blind,' was the reply. As they passed along, the Major glanced at each man, looked into the canvas water-tanks, scrutinised the residential sheds beneath the wall, and in one of them discovered a scrap of paper. As the ground was covered with leaves, twigs, and bits of grass, as well as being thick with mud, Bertram did not see that this piece of paper mattered much. This only shows his ignorance. The major pointed at it, speechless. Captain Mac paled with horror, wrath, or grief. Gussie Augustus Guss stooped and stared at it, screwing his monocle in the tighter that he might see the better and not be deceived. Verica turned it over with his stick, and only then believed the evidence of three of his senses. The jemadar shook his head with incredulous but pained expression. He called for the Havildar, whose mouth fell open. The two men were very alike, being relatives, but while the senior wore a look of incredulous pain, the junior, it seemed to Bertram, rather wore one of pained incredulity. That is to say, the Jemadar looked stricken, but unable to believe his eyes, whereas the Havildar looked as though he could not believe his eyes, but was stricken nevertheless. All stared hard at the piece of paper. It was a poignant moment. No one moved, and no one seemed to breathe. Suddenly the Havildar touched a naik who stood behind his men, with his back to the group of officers, and stared fixedly at nothing. He turned, beheld the paper at which the Havildar's accusing finger pointed, rigid but tremulous. What next? The naik pocketed the paper, and the incident was closed. Bertram was glad that he had witnessed it. He knew thenceforth the proper procedure for an officer who, wearing the stand-to face, sees a piece of paper— the third wall of the Boma was occupied by a company of Dogras, of an imperial service corps under a Subadar, a fine-looking Rajput, and a company of the Marathas, of the 198th, under the Subadar Major of that regiment. Bertram was strongly attracted to this latter officer, and thought that never before had he seen an Indian whose face combined so much of patient strength, gentle firmness, simple honesty, and noble pride. He was introduced to Bertram, and as they shook hands and saluted, the fine old face was lit up with a smile of genuine pleasure and friendly respectfulness. A man of the old school, who recognised duties as well as rights, and in whose sight, false to his salt, was the last and lowest epithet of uttermost degradation. "'You'll have charge of this face of the fort to-morrow, Green,' said the Major, as they passed on. Subdar Major Luxman Atmaran is a priceless old bird. He'll see you have no trouble. Don't be in a hurry to tell him off or anything, because it's a hundred to one you'll find he's right. Bertram smiled to himself at the thought of his being the sort to tell off anybody without due cause, and was secretly pleased to find that Major Mallory had thought such a thing possible. The remaining side of the fort was held by Gurkhas, and Bertram noted the fact with pleasure. He had taken a great fancy to these cheery, steady people, Another machine-gun, with its team of Askaris of the King's African Rifles, occupied the middle of this wall. "'Don't cough or sneeze near the gun,' murmured Verica to Bertram, "'or it may fall to pieces again. The copper wire is all right, but the bootlace was not new to begin with.' "'What kind of gun is it?' he asked. "'It was a hotchkiss once. It's a Hotchpotch now,' was the reply. "'Don't touch it as you pass.' and the puzzled Bertram observed that it was actually bound with copper wire at one point, and tied with some kind of cord or string at another. By the hospital, a horrible pit with a tent over it, stood the Indian youth and a party of Swahili stretcher-bearers. Bertram wondered whether it would ever be his fate to be carried on one of those blood-stained stretchers by a couple of those negroes, laid on the mud at the bottom of that pit, and operated on by that young native of India. He shuddered. Fancy one's life-blood ebbing away into that mud. Fancy dying, mangled, in that hole, but no one, but a Bupendranath Chatterjee, to soothe one's last agonies. Having completed his tour of inspection, Major Mallory removed the Stantoo face, and resumed his ordinary one, said, They can dismiss, to Captain Mack and the group of officers, and tore off his cross-belt and tunic. All of his hearers relaxed their faces likewise, blew their whistles, cried, dismiss in the direction of their respective native officers and removed their belts and tunics almost as quickly as they had removed their stand-to faces they then proceeded to the bristol bar End of part 2 chapter 15